Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. I've mentioned it to those of you who worship with us regularly. If you're visiting us today, we recently had a series based in some of the Psalms, a series called Soundtracks. As part of that series, over a three-week period, you texted in questions and concerns that you have in your walk with God. And based on one strand of your responses, we start this series today. In your bulletin are the questions that we are largely trying to address in this series, but I'm going to read them just in case you didn't get one on a bulletin on the way in. Here are some of the questions drawn from all four services that have to do with how God feels about us, relates to us, forgives us, and even provides us an assurance of our salvation. You texted How can I be sure of my salvation? Why don't you, that is God, give me peace? What must I do so Jesus will resurrect me and take me to heaven? How to make sure my obeying laws does not earn my salvation? Are my sins forgiven? I've blatantly sinned. I've repented. And by the grace of God, turned my life around. I still wonder how to have the assurance I'm forgiven. I am gay and love Jesus with all my heart. Will I make it to heaven? Am I doing what I need to make it to heaven? Sometimes I feel I'm not enough. I read that you love me, but I don't feel it. Am I lovable? Why do I feel so fearful of your second coming, Lord? I want so much to be with you, but I've always felt unworthy despite your grace and love. Will I be able to go to heaven? Those are just some. The question could be asked in many different ways, as you have already seen, but it boils down to the question, has God forgiven me? Or if you want to speak it in the present, will God, does God today, here, now, forgive me? Those kinds of questions, that kind of uncertainty, those kinds of doubts can affect us at very deep levels. That's underlined by a text I received a week or so ago from a member of our community here, Ron Ford from the School of Dentistry. Ron texted me and said, Hello, Pastor Randy. I keep thinking of the QR codes and the partial responses which were shared in church and how we see ourselves mirrored in them in varying degrees. A significant number of them touched on the sense of guilt, either specific guilt or a free-floating guilt, In thinking about that, my mind goes back to this statement penned by Ellen White. 
The knowledge which God did not want our first parents to have was a knowledge of guilt. And when they accepted the assertions of Satan, which were false, disobedience and transgression were introduced into the world. This disobedient, disobedience opened the floodgates of woe upon the world. And then back to Ron's words. I am more and more convinced that just as pride is the grandfather of all sins, guilt is the father behind what is much of the mental crisis today. Shame, anxiety, sleeplessness, distrust, self-destructive behaviors, competition with others, drugs, hypertension, and a host of other human realities are associated in some way and to some degree with the guilt we have all experienced. That's enough from me, Randy. May God bless you as you prepare to minister on this subject. So what about it? To have a church that has many within it who still wonder, has God forgiven me? Are God and I good? Can I have the assurance, though I have failed, of his acceptance and grace? So in an attempt to help to try to answer that question, today we begin a new series, a series focused on God and God's ways in our world and in our lives. The ways God acts always, the way God never acts, and the way God sometimes acts. Because I think within those just may be contained the answer to the questions we have. Thus, the name of our series is God Always, Never, Sometimes. So today, for God always. Throughout the series, we'll be going to John's first letter, the epistle of 1 John. Today, we go to 1 John 1. What is it that God always does that can help address our uncertainties and our fears? So we're going to read a very brief paragraph, three verses long, from 1 John 1. And I want to just alert you to the, the lay of the land, what you might look for as we read. First of all, the verse is kind of a sandwich where the two pieces of bread talk about claims we can make when it comes to our sin. And then the middle piece, what we would call the <clears throat> veggie meat, is what we would call the heart of the issue, a confession we can make. So when it comes to the sinful realities of our condition and of our lives, John is going to tell us there are two claims that you might make or there is a confession that you might make. So let's read 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we claim, there's the first claim, to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess, there's the heart of the matter, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then verse 10, if we claim, there's the second piece of bread, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So when it comes to this matter of the sinful human condition, which then leads to actions that are damaging and harmful to others and to ourselves, to sinful actions, John says there's a couple of things we can do. We can make certain claims or we can confess certain realities. So let's start with the claims. And let's reread verse 8 because that's the first claim. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
The claim here, drawing from the language and the imagery and what's happening in the context of John's letter, is the claim of someone who says, there's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing bent or skewed, nothing wrong with my nature. I am as I was intended to be. If you're looking for sin, look somewhere else. That's not me. It has to do with a condition that then will lead to sinful actions, but it begins in that condition. That's not me. I am claiming that that's not my problem. There were people in John's church, the church to which he was writing, who were making that claim, and that claim persists to this very day. In fact, uh, it's worth noting how it is that Eugene Peterson renders this in his paraphrase of the message. He says, if we claim we're free of sin, we're only fooling ourselves. A claim like that is errant nonsense. Now, often this comes out in the claim that I haven't committed some sinful action of which maybe I'm being accused. As I was reading that and thinking about it, my mind went back to when Miranda, our daughter, was just a, a young girl. Just, I don't remember her age, four, five, six years old, somewhere in that range. And, and we weren't super strict about it, but we tried to discourage eating between mealtimes. And I went one day to the refrigerator and I saw these these chocolatey fingerprints on the refrigerator door. And I saw some crumbs down below. And I remembered those really delicious chocolate chip cookies that were in the refrigerator. And so I went in search of the one who had committed the crime. And I found Miranda, and I found some crumbs on the way to her room. I found Miranda with, with still with chocolate on her face. And I looked at her, and I said, Miranda, have you been in the refrigerator? No, Daddy, I haven't done that. You didn't eat any of the chocolate chip cookies? No, Daddy, I haven't. And I said, Miranda, those Jesus intended your daddy to eat those chocolate chip cookies. And now they're gone. <laughs> no, Daddy, I didn't do it. That's what John is talking about. People who with all the evidence, all the chocolate, all the crumbs are saying, not me, not a problem here. You're just trying to make me feel guilty. Stop doing that. John says that's the first claim that people are making in the church to which he's writing and even still make it to this very day. Second claim, this one in verse 10. We read it again. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, there's a little bit of a difference to this claim that's underlined by the words of this Bible commentary. So the, the, the line, the phrase is, we have not sinned. So listen to what the commentary says. The perfect tense shows that the reference is to the result of an act in the past. The clause states that we have never actually done anything sinful, and consequently, we are free from the resulting guilt. No, not only are we not doing something now, not only is there not a sin power at work, not only do we have no reason for guilt, we haven't even done anything wrong in the past. Don't try to blame that on us. Don't try to lay that at our doorstep. We're good here. The challenging reality is that because of the way we're wired, because of that God-designed vacuum in our midst, when we get askew from that, there are 
realities that emerge within us that say something is wrong regardless of the claim we make. And then we're back to Ron's text. Sleeplessness and drugs and anxiety and addiction attempts somehow to quell the dis-ease within us. Don't try to lay that on me. I haven't done that. Not now and not in the past. And what it leads to are apologies that are very skewed. Have you noticed that in our world, in our culture today, that how people apologize often takes zero responsibility and places it somewhere else? Back in 2003, Assistant U.S. Attorney General Kenneth Taylor was going to be trying a case in a certain part of this country. And when he was interviewed by the media, I don't know what he was trying to do, but he did refer to his potential jury pool as, his words, not mine, as illiterate cave dwellers. Now, maybe it's just me, but that doesn't seem like something most of us would want to be called. And so, as you can imagine, there was a surge of outcry to which he finally spoke and apologized. Here was his apology. The comment was not meant to be a regional slur. To the extent that it was misinterpreted to be one, I apologize. <laughs> what? Misinterpreted to be one? In other words, if you feel that way, I'm really sorry how you feel. <laughs> but almost worse was a newspaper, the Herald-Ledger of Lexington, Kentucky, that apologized in this way on July 4, 2004. They wrote, It has come to the editor's attention that the Herald-Ledger neglected, neglected to cover the civil rights movement. We regret the omission. What? Neglected? Omission? What are you talking about? Apologies. Wasn't really my problem. I didn't really do anything wrong. I don't have sin, so go look somewhere else. The failure to be able to own and to say, this is who I am, this is what I did, limits what God can do on our behalf. So those are the two claims. Now we come to the center of the sandwich, the middle to the confession that we can make. And this is what John says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess. Wait a minute, it's just that simple? If we confess our sins, it's interesting, that word in the Greek, homologeo, means not just to confess and to say something, but to agree with something that has been pointed out in you, something that has been stated. You agree with it. And so when somebody says, you didn't cover the civil rights movement, that was a slur of some kind, you say, you're exactly right. That's exactly what we did. And we are very sorry. We agree with you. And do you know what this book says? 
This book says that as human beings, there is something awry within us, something that is skewed that leads us to commit actions that damage others and damage ourselves. The way scripture refers to it, it says, you are sinners. And so what John says is we are simply agreeing with that. God, I agree with what you say about my condition. I confess that. You are right. And I'm asking you to forgive me. That's confession. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's just that simple. That is a reality in which God always engages. Always. Do you notice the, the limits, the conditions in this verse? They are simply if we confess. That's the limit. That's the condition. If we confess. You say, well, what about repentance? What about amends making? I would suggest to you that at the core of the entire process is the act of confessing to God. Even David knew that in Psalm 51 when he wrote about his sin with Bathsheba and said, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. It was against you, God. But repentance is the process of turning one's attention, orientation in another direction. And in this case, it's turning our orientation from self to God. That's repentance. And that repentance leads to confession. God, you are right. What I did was wrong. It was damaging. It was hurtful. I confess that to you, and I say I'm sorry. And then coming out of the peace that God bestows upon us, it drives us out to make it right with others and to make amends to others. But at the heart of it is this act of confessing to God. So to go back to our questions, to our concerns, to our lack of assurance, God, what do I need to do to be sure that I have received your forgiveness? If we confess. I mean, God, do you need a period of time where you cool off and where you're no longer angry and where I can then come and approach you? If we confess. God, maybe I need to get a little distance from the scene of the crime, a little chronological time to pass so it doesn't hurt so bad, so the edge isn't so sharp. Maybe then I can feel forgiven if we confess. Well, God, maybe if I can minimize what I did so that it doesn't seem so bad and it doesn't require something so big by way of forgiveness, maybe if we confess. He is faithful, he is just, and he will forgive us from our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It was in my teen years, we were living in another country. We went down with some other friends to a place where there was a great religious festival that was at the heart of the religion that was practiced there in that place. It's a magnificent festival. Not tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people came. 
Right at the center of it, right at the heart of it, was the object of many people's attention. I had to elbow my way through the crowd to be able to see it. But finally I saw it. There were pilgrims making a pilgrimage. They did it for different lengths of time and distance. The furthest was about five miles. Some did shorter. Who were coming on their knees on the cobblestone, making a pilgrimage, piety, wanting to express gratitude and appreciation, but at the heart of it, seeking the forgiveness of God. I can still remember seeing it in my mind's eye. All of them had family members on either side holding them under their arms as their bloodied knees crawled forward trying to make it to the goal. God, is that what you need? So that I can purge my conscience, lay my head on my pillow at night, and know that I'm forgiven if we confess. God always forgives. That's the condition John tells us. If we confess. If you're anything like I am, you end up saying, Randy, that's, that is just too easy. Somebody's got to pay somewhere, somehow. And the truth is, God has taken that pain on himself at a place called Calvary so that we can hear his word, you are forgiven. Just a couple months, two or three months ago, I was in a group, we were talking, and I said something that as soon as I walked away, I thought, why did I say that? It wasn't necessarily horrible, but it surely wasn't great, and it just kept nagging at my mind. When I got a chance a little bit later that evening or the next morning, I don't remember, I texted the person. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry. That wasn't a kind thing to say, and I should have just kept my mouth shut, which is usually the case. I'm very sorry. Immediately, I got a text back that said this. Please don't spend one more second of your time thinking about that all is good between us you are fully forgiven that's what John is telling us about God that guilty conscience that has kept you up at night that uncertainty of your standing before God will God take me maybe I'm the unique one that God can't forgive Maybe I haven't repented enough. Maybe I haven't felt bad enough. Maybe I haven't gotten better enough. Maybe there's something that stands in the way. And so you come before God and you say, God, I confess. I was wrong. I bring it to you. And God looks at you and says, please, now, don't spend one more second of your time on that. 
all is forgiven. That's his message to you and his message to me. But I realize that sometimes it's helpful just for us to take a step, something that we can point to as saying, this is where I placed it before God. This is where I confessed it to God. So here's what I'm going to ask. I'm going to do that this morning. I'm going to do that myself. I'm going to kneel here and just say, God, this week there were some things I wish I hadn't done, said, thought, impatience, being unwise with what I said, whatever the case might be, I want to kneel here and say, God, I confess it to you, and I want to leave it here with you. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.